Well, this morning we are going to begin our Advent series uh, with, uh, with a passage from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. I'll bring the text up on the screen. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So we are in the Christmas season, season of Advent, which simply means coming, uh, arrival. And, uh, and so that means it's the time of uh, watching lots of classic Christmas movies. And I thought it was very important for me to give you uh, the official rankings of the three Grinch movies that are in existence right now. Uh, because we've seen them all multiple times. And so uh, number one clearly is the original cartoon. It's a classic. You cannot beat it. Okay. It's 100% nostalgia. It's amazing. Uh, number two is that live action, really weird uh, live action one with Jim Carrey. Uh, w- uh, the bonus is that it scares small children, and uh, and then and then number three is the latest cartoon that came out, which is very cute and safe and fun and whatever. It's boring, but um, uh, but those those are the official rankings, and uh, that's not my opinion. That's fact. And um, but I thought it would be good to begin our Advent series. Uh, you know uh, that, that's celebrating the season of light and hope by quoting from the, uh, the other Christmas classic, the very bleak Western Unforgiven, starring uh, Clint Eastwood. In that movie, a young man is, is trying to uh, mark out his reputation as a deadly gunslinger, and he finally kills someone, but he is clearly disturbed by it. And as he sits under a tree, drinking his nerves and his guilt away, the, uh, the veteran gunslinger, Clint Eastwood, remarks dryly to him that it's, uh, it's a heck of a thing to kill a man, to take away all that he's got and all that he's going to have. And the young man replied shakily, yeah, well, I guess he had it coming. And then the veteran replied after a moment, kid, we all got it coming. Merry Christmas. <laughs> All right, where do we, why do we start there? Well, we're starting there because why are we celebrating Christmas? Why is it that we need a Savior? Why are we celebrating the birth of the Messiah? Well, to put it bluntly, because we've all got it coming. We are reminded by the prophet Isaiah 
that the Savior comes to illuminate darkness and gloom. Specifically, to illuminate and convey life to those who live in that darkness and gloom. And so one scholar uh, on this passage in Isaiah remarked, he says, As always, the people of God must decide what reading of their experiences they will live by. Are they to look at the darkness, the hopelessness, the dreams shattered, and conclude that God has forgotten them? Or are they to recall the past mercies, to remember His present promises, and to make great affirmations of faith? And we are reminded that we celebrate Christmas, we give gifts, we sing the songs, uh, because we live in a world of darkness and gloom, but a world that has seen a great light. We are the people who know that light, who live in that light. The light that illumines our very souls, even as we carry on in a hard and fallen world. And so as we consider this passage, we're first going to be looking at the dawning of the light Uh, upon the people of God uh, in verses 2 and 3. And then we're going to explore in verses 4 through 7 why that light saves. So first, uh, we go to verses 2 and 3 and the dawning of the light on the people of God. And we see in verse 2 that that God pierces the darkness uh, with His light. Darkness is uh, an all-too-familiar metaphor The universality of that metaphor speaks to its power in the common experience of man. So God is speaking to the people who dwell in a land of deep darkness, he says. That, that, That word in the Hebrew is a word that means impenetrable gloom. It's a word that means essentially pitch black darkness. Even the, the translation, the, the, the LXX or the, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the way it puts that into Greek is to call it the shadow of death. If this were a fantasy novel, it would be called the land of the death shadow. And there are people who walk there. There are people who live in the land of the death shadow. In Isaiah's immediate context, he is speaking to people who are in exile for the sins of idolatry and abandoning the Lord amongst a whole host of other sins. For all intents and purposes, they are in perpetual mourning at the death of their nation as they dwell dispersed throughout the land of Assyria. But if you've ever been in pitch black darkness before, you know it's something that you cannot actually get used to. Your, lie, your eyes don't adjust. You can't see the little hints of shapes so you don't stub your toes when you're walking around. You may figure out how to move in it blindly, but that's only until you can turn on a light. And there, there, it, pitch black darkness cannot become the new normal. And, and so it says, it is to these, those who live in that pitch black darkness, that the light has shown. Not just a little light, but light that has pierced the impenetrable gloom. The light has not missed its mark either. It's not just being shown around indiscriminately. The light has shown upon the people who live in that darkness, who walk daily in that darkness. But what does light do? Now, it's interesting is that I was thinking about this. You know, darkness is very boring because it covers up everything. Everything is 
the same. There are no variations. There's no distinctions. There's no color. There's no life in the darkness because it's all black. But when light comes in, light begins to bring out those distinctions. You begin to see shapes. begin to see colors. You begin to see the the, 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 the worrisome Legos that you didn't want to step on because your kids didn't clean them up. Light reveals the, these things that we could not otherwise know if we were just dwelling in darkness. Because light is pushing away darkness because they cannot occupy the same space. And so this light has to be an illuminating light that has come, that Isaiah speaks of. And this, in this light, he says, he multiplies, God multiplies the joy of his people. In verse 3, we could, we could speculate, uh, we could go on speculating about the things that light does, uh, and to even beyond what I've already stated. But the prophet makes clear that this light has two effects. That by this light, God multiplies his people, and he multiplies their joy. The people of God increase. They multiply in number in the light. The light is thus spreading as the people of God increase in number. But it's not just spreading the quantity of God's people, but we find out also the quality of their life increases, for their joy increases as well. It multiplies. And, and, and that's important because if you, take, if you take things and you start dividing them, you might think, well, there's a limited supply of joy that kind of diminishes as we spread it around. But he says, no, as it is divided and multiplies, it actually, it actually it increases, it grows. But what kind of joy is this? Well, to illustrate the kind of joy we're dealing with here, Isaiah highlights uh, two uh, great moments in ancient cultures. And that is, first, when the harvest is brought in and it's a good harvest. And the anticipation, the reward of that hard work and resources that invested in the ground now coming back, the joy that what you hoped for is coming, coming true, and also the security of knowing that you're going to have provision in the days ahead. There's a reason that agricultural societies would not just, when they did the harvest, and it was a great harvest, they didn't just you know, bring it in and let's process it and stuff like that. What did they do? They threw a party, right? Because it was a great time when the harvest comes in. Uh, and secondly, uh, the, the second picture is when they... Is when they divide the spoil after war, the victory. Because remember, usually a nation's life was on the line in these types of things. And so when, and you only strip the spoil uh, once the victory is complete and the enemy is defeated. Because when they say the spoil, it's usually what you stripped off of the dead. <laughs> so, so to take their stuff, to take their boots, they got to be dead. The enemy has to be no longer a threat. And so this is spoil, increase, treasures, as well as security. It's that kind of joy. And so Isaiah is, is, is and so, you know, if we think about that, you know, what is it, you know, what are those types of things for us? 
What are the types of joy that we experience? You know, what is, our, what is compatible for the harvest? What is compatible for the victory in, uh, in war and dividing the spoils? And to think about what that is for our lives. And that, that's that type of high, uh, uh, kind of exultant joy that he's talking of here. And Isaiah, we, are, we recall here, though, is writing to a people who currently live in a hostile land. They live in the land of the enemy. They were conquered. They were captured. They were distributed throughout the enemy's territory in order to assimilate so that they wouldn't rise up against in, in rebellion. They dwell in darkness as, as they're reading Isaiah's words. But Isaiah says, there is a light coming that will dawn upon the people of God. There's a light coming, and when that comes, there will be a great reversal of fortune. It is a message of hope. Isaiah is bringing a revelation of the salvation that is to come. And for us, on this side of of the cross, we know that the light has dawned in Jesus. The gospel writer John must have known this text well when he wrote about Jesus, who who is the true light, he said, coming into the world. And that light, he says, shines in the darkness. John gives us a greater meaning of what it means for Jesus to be the light. What is this light? He says in verse 4 of chapter 1 that, that, that in Christ was, was life, and that life was the light of men. And so when the light of God comes, life and light are inextricably bound together. And so when the light of God comes, it illuminates the souls of men and brings life, eternal life, resurrection life to them. How important then is life-giving light to those who dwell in the land of the death shadow? Sin, death, the works and schemes of the devil darken this world and even the corruption of our own natures and souls. We were, as Paul said, sons, sons of disobedience, by nature children of wrath, those who dwelt in deep darkness. And Isaiah promises this one to come who will redeem us from sin, redeem us from death, defeat the dominion of darkness. And Christ, we know, comes into the world as light shining in the darkness, a baby born in a manger, the promise of a Savior fulfilled. And as deep as the darkness may feel to us today, John reminds us that the darkness has not overcome the light. The light continues to shine. We need to examine why it is that this light saves. In one sense, we've already addressed this, uh, even in passing, by noting that this light brings life, even eternal life, to those who will receive the Savior. But Isaiah has more to say, and Isaiah says that by the dawning of the light, essentially that the power of sin is broken, in verses 4 and 5. Three instruments of power are listed here. The yoke, the staff, and the rod. 
Now, a yoke is a metaphor. Now, Jesus uses this metaphor in Matthew 11. We talked about this uh, on a Sunday night over at the joint Thanksgiving service. Um, And uh, where he says, take my yoke upon you. Well, that's a metaphor for commitment and obedience uh, to Christ. But a yoke was also used as a metaphor for violent oppression and servitude, to have a yoke forced upon you by another. And so that, and, and so that is how it's being used here. And so we have this, this metaphor of violent oppression and the staff and the rod obviously used to inflict pain and forced servitude. And so we have these metaphors essentially that are being used to indicate suffering that the people of God have endured and suffering that has been inflicted upon them. And Isaiah says that the dawning of the light has destroyed all these means of oppression. They have broken them. Just like God broke the power of the Midianites, it's going back to the tale of Gideon in the book of Judges and how God brought great deliverance through him. Now, as, as, as evidence of this, Isaiah invites us to look and see the landscape now, how the boots of the soldiers and the bloody garments of combat have been burned in the fire. The instruments of war are no longer present. There is now, as one author wrote, no burdens, no blows, no tyrants. Again, consider what the people that Isaiah is writing to have just gone through. Consider where they live. Oppression is their life. Military defeat, fear of the soldier's boot is a daily reality for them. But the Lord prophesies through the prophet that there is a time coming when these terrible realities of their experience will be no more. And when will that be? When will that start to happen? When will things start to change? He says, when the light dawns, when the light comes in. For the Savior to come is for him to break the power, the dominion of the oppressor, and bring the suffering of his people ultimately to an end. And all of this culminates, that, that, uh, that Isaiah has been talking about, it culminates, it crescendos, it crystallizes uh, in the great son who is born in verses 6 and 7. He gets very, very specific. The light dawning, the breaking of the power of darkness is ultimately traced to the coming of the blessed Son. He is born, thus He is human. He is given by God to us, thus He is in some way divine. He is meant to rule, because the government, we are told, shall be upon His shoulders. And we are told He has a great name. He has such a great name, in fact, that it can only be truly expressed through four titles. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, that is, He shall possess miraculous or supernatural wisdom. He shall shall be called Mighty God, that is, He will rule with power, the power of the Lord on behalf of His people. He will be called Everlasting Father, that is, He will exercise His rule with a paternal care for His subjects. And He will be called Prince of Peace. For he will bring lasting wholeness 
and restoration to his kingdom and his citizens. These titles taken together describe a Messiah who is, as one author wrote, the whole man, perfectly integrated, a rounded personality, at one with God and humankind, who administers the benefits of his rule perfectly. And Isaiah says his rule will know no end in distance or in length of time. And we think that is the very definition of what confines even the greatest of human rulers. They, can only, they only rule over a certain distance of, of space, and they can only rule for so long because they die or they're overthrown. Or they, and so it says, no, no, there's no limit to the rule of this one, either in the, either in the square inch that, he, that, that his kingdom covers or in the amount of time. He rules forever. And we find out that this is the one who will rule on the throne of David. He is the everlasting king that God promised way back in 2 Samuel 7 when God made a covenant with David. His rule will be for the benefit of his people because his rule is not merely for his own power or his own glory in terms of petty human aspirations, but his goal is to establish his kingdom and to uphold it with justice and righteousness forever. It is the place where those who have lived in darkness will want to live. We need to understand that these promises are not just a big deal to us. They are written to a people in exile who have been cut off from their land, who are far away from anything resembling the kingdom of God. But Isaiah says to them, the light is coming. And the light is coming in the form of a person yet to be born from the line of David, who will reign forever, bringing joy, peace, and righteousness to his people. And then 700 years later, just 700 years later, a child is born. And in Christ, we know the king has come. When we consider these realities, it is little wonder that we find in the Gospels angelic dreams, angelic visits, and angelic choirs attending to the birth of Christ. The kings that come from afar to bring him gifts. The, uh, the wicked rulers who seek to destroy him because they fear him. He is the one who is born to rule and deliver us from the darkness. In his life, the Gospel of John says that he revealed his glory. And in his death and resurrection, he destroyed the dominion of darkness. And his light continues to spread. And where it does, it removes the darkness of our own corruption and the corruption in the world. Now one thing you notice is how Isaiah writes what's going to happen in the future using past tense verbs. He writes it all the way throughout. It's as if the prophecy has already occurred. This is what scholars call the prophetic consciousness, or what I've heard elsewhere, and I prefer to call it the the prophetic past tense. Such is the certainty that these things will happen, that they are spoken of as if they have already occurred. Because this, this is important, because The prophet Isaiah is speaking to those about things that have not yet come 
that have not yet, and they have to live in a not yet. For us who live on this side of the cross, on this side of the revelation of the light of Christ and the Savior, we live in that already but not yet. Because we see, we look at Isaiah and we see, okay, I can see some of that is true. Some of that has occurred, but not all of it. Not all of it. There's still darkness in the world. We still live in the midst of it. The Apostle Paul describes Christians as stars shining in the darkness of the sky. Right? We live in a world of darkness and we feel it from time to time and moment in various moments in our lives. But the Gospel of John says that the light has come. And he says in his Gospel, it shines in the darkness. He doesn't say the darkness is therefore no more. He says the darkness has not overcome it. Meaning that the light continues to shine in the darkness until, until, as the book of Revelation says, when Christ comes and he banishes all darkness from the world. You know, for me, growing up, Christmas was always a positive time of warm memories, family, and friends. And once I became a Christian, it obviously took on a greater significance. Because there, there is a darkness to Christmas in the Advent season. Partly because it's wintertime. The days are shorter. It gets darker sooner. Um, the, but there's, there's also a mournfulness to the songs we sing. Think about some of our favorite songs. There's a mournfulness. O come, O come, Emmanuel. What a glum, gloomy song. But hope, filled with hope, yearning and expectation. There's a mournfulness to Christmas as we look for hope in the Savior who was born in a dark world. And so at the beginning, I, again, I quoted from that wonderful Christmas movie, Unforgiven, where Clint Eastwood reminds us that we need a Savior because we all have it coming. We all live in darkness of this world, the darkness of sin and death. We feel it more acutely at certain times than others. But make no mistake, as dark as things may be around you today, as dark as things may be even in your own hearts, the light has dawned upon you in the face of Jesus Christ to bring you light and joy in his rule forever. So let us embrace the light. Let us receive Christ and hold on to him, for he will illuminate our souls with eternal life and welcome us into his kingdom. And one day, the light of God will banish from existence darkness itself, and we will live in the light of the Father and the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. We would have no other light by which to live by if he had not been revealed. And so we thank you, Lord, that your son entered into our darkness and that he brought light. 
that he brought life, that he brought salvation, that he brought hope, hope that endures even as we struggle along in this world. And so, Lord, we pray that our joy would be deep and abounding and real to us right now. Lord, whether we are celebrating the joys of life and the blessings of, uh, in your providence, or we are enduring through sufferings and afflictions and sorrows, Lord, may we look to that light that is in Jesus Christ. May we rejoice in him, Father, and may we, may we glory in the wonder of the kingdom that is revealed, that we are part of it, and that we are welcomed not only as citizens, but even as family, all for the sake of Christ and by the light that you dawned in this darkness through him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.